Welcome to Liftoff from your friends at Relay FM, brought to you this time by Eero. Liftoff is a fortnightly show where you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand the latest news about space and related subjects. My name is Stephen Hackett, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Jason Snell. Hi, Stephen. Hello, Jason. We're we back. return. Mm-hmm. We're back. We are it's good. back. And we have... We have stories. We have some pre-flight checklists. We have an installment of the SLS segment. Mm-hmm. Names, My favorite segment. <laughs> name I will read again. Uh, then we got some stories. So I think we should. Uh, I think we should just jump right in and let's start with this super fun, crazy blog post by Ryan Smith about the lunar reconnaissance orbiters that took pictures yeah. of the moon looking for Apollo landing sites. Yeah, this is another example of how the civilian space program is so intertwined with the secret U.S. government spy programs, as we talked about when we talked about the book about the early days of the space shuttle mm-hmm. and about the, the you know, their whole astronauts coming over from the Air Force, um, you know, manned reconnaissance observatory that they were going to do and then they didn't do because spy satellites were good. And then they looked at the shuttle. Well, turns out that that was not even close to the beginning of this because when they were planning moon landings they needed to take pictures because the last thing they wanted was to like land in a field of boulders or land on a on a the top of a a mountain or something like that they wanted a nice smooth flat area to land in that also potentially had interesting things to study scientifically and um so this story by ryan smith on world of indy um kind of details some of this story um they sent satellites around the moon in the 60s in order to, as at the beginning of the Apollo, Apollo program and throughout the 60s, in order to um, do this reconnaissance of landing sites. And the cameras on those satellites were based on spy cameras. So they were, as the technology advanced during the 60s, they were incredibly high-resolution cameras. So much so that when the images were finally released to the public in 1971, they were all down-resed, essentially, and fuzzed up so that the, the U.S. government could pretend that its spy satellite technology was not actually <laughs> that good. Like, no, 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 we don't know. And, and I, I, I find myself wondering, did the, did the Russians really buy it? <laughs> like, yeah. like, no, this is, ha-ha, silly Americans. I'm not going to try to do a Russian accent. Like, they're, they're very bad at what they're doing. We are much better than them. Or, did, or were they like, please, come on. I can tell. That's fake. Anyway, they were massively high-resolution images. Like, to this day, you would think, that is it, just amazing that you would have this. They could blow up these images to 40 by 54 and you're thinking 40 by 54 that's pretty big jason like that's that's like like not a not a uh, an 8 by 10 glossy um i mean 40 by 54 feet <laughs> you cover the side <laughs> of a building <laughs> you could and in fact they um they took them to a there was a church in houston i believe where they uh where they took this stuff and they like laid out these pictures all on the floor. They like emptied the pews or whatever and, and laid them out in this. Wow. In, in, they needed a huge surface and walls in order to lay this stuff out because it was that high resolution. But that's how they chose safe landing areas for the, uh, for the Apollo missions, which is great. Um, the way the orbiters worked was they took pictures with 70 millimeter film. So massive high resolution film. Of course, this is in the days of uh, how do you how, so film, right? Mm-hmm. That means you need a dark room on board. So they had a developer on board, um, not a guy uh, like a box, uh, because they, they, that, that guy would die otherwise. <laughs> so they had a box, and then they scan 
the negatives in uh, with a scanner at 200 lines per millimeter resolution and then beam that data back with lossless analog compression. This is like before there wasn't even a patent on this. It was just they invented it so that they could they could send this information back losslessly. So incredibly high tech for the mid 60s. And those transmissions were recorded on magnetic tape. There's so much data was coming back. And keep in mind, this is the 60s that they had to have a tape drive that was the size of a refrigerator. And each one of them cost $300,000 in 1960s money. Um, so they had these huge data tapes full of this data set. They were stored in Maryland for a long time. In the mid-80s, they were transferred to the Jet Propulsion Lab in California. Um, there were people there who were interested in them. And I think the way the, sto- way the story goes, they le- like left their jobs, but they um, they kept the the hardware because they were trying to keep this alive. We've, mm-hmm. we've heard, told this story before about how sometimes the old tech, nobody nobody can get to the file formats, nobody can read the tapes because they don't have the hardware anymore right. and, they don't, and it wasn't necessarily documented. So the good news was that they finally found a way to save them before the tapes died or before all the hardware died so that they couldn't actually read them anymore. Um, and what they did was they, they sent them to NASA Ames in, uh, in the Bay Area, and they set up a lab. Um, so NASA Ames was like, we will do this project. We will pull the data off those tapes. And they they assigned a building on the NASA Ames campus that used to be a McDonald's. <laughs> Still has a, kind of the funny roof. It t- totally looks like a McDonald's. They called the building McMoon. <laughs> That's very good. That's very good. Of course they did. Of course they did. Anyway, so they, they get the tape drive. Uh, they, they have to restore the, the, the refrigerator-sized thing. They had a bunch of o- other old ones so that they could use for spare parts that they got. Um, they had to build new hardware to do analog-digital conversions. The, the, the system of labeling wasn't documented anywhere, so they had to figure out like by hand how to decode the coordinates in order to know what Jeez. they were looking at, like what part of the moon they were looking at. They made custom software that interfaced with, face, with Photoshop, to link all the images together. Um, but just to give you an idea, the best of these images, the highest resolution of these images, resolve the lunar surface uh, where you can see objects less than one meter, which is bananas. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that, is, that is, I believe to this day, the best view ever taken of the lunar surface. So pretty amazing stuff. And those later images could be as large as two gigabytes per image. And keep in mind, 60s. <laughs> In the 60s, yeah. maybe the early 70s. Two gigabytes per image is big now. It is. Back then it was uh, it, absolutely enormous, which is why they have a refrigerator tape Sort drive. of hilariously large. I mean, you look yeah. at these pictures, and again, it's in a McDonald's, so there's like a, a fryer on the side of the wall still. But the whole, yeah. like, the whole room is just full of these canisters of, the, of these data tapes. Yeah, and they're, they're lossless, right? So that's part of it is it's not like a JPEG. It's like a TIFF. It's a lossless image file. So it's huge to begin with. And it's incredibly high resolution. Anyway, so the project started at Ames in 2007. It lasted about 10 years. It ended in April 2017. They restored 2,000 images from 1,500 different tapes, including the first photo ever taken by humanity of an Earth rise. You know, Earth rising over mm-hmm. the limb of the moon. The first time was not by astronauts. It was by the reconnaissance orbiters and of course nasa released that image and it was kind of ugly because it was the downrest version and now you can see the beautiful and they're they're all black and white but um just a beautiful image um they delivered the data the mcmoon building is either demolished or due to be demolished because 
they, there's probably something better they could build there rather than just have a, an old McDonald's sitting on the campus <laughs> and build something else there. And uh, the image archive is on the web. So we'll put a link in the show notes. But they put up uh, a gallery of all of those images. So now it can be told 50 years later, this incredibly high resolution space imagery coming from these essentially spy satellites that were used to map the surface of the moon for Apollo landings. Real wild stuff. Uh you also put a story in here about, I, I was going to read your headline in the Google Doc, Black Hole Death Burps. Yep. <laughs> That's about right. I don't know. I didn't know what to call this. It's a, it's a nice story in the New York Times. We'll put a link in um, about uh, scientists saw evidence of what they originally thought was a supernova. It was a very high energy event going on in a colliding pair of galaxies called ARP 299. There's lots of interesting stuff that happens when galaxies come together. Um you know, a lot of star formation and then the, because the gas, you know, the stars don't tend to hit each other, it happens, but they don't tend to hit each other. But in these galaxy collisions, you get a lot of kind of uh, gas and dust uh, collide with each other and it, it leads to a wave of star formation. And a lot of those stars are, of course, the big stars that then are bright and then explode. So you expect a lot of fireworks to happen in, uh, in a galaxy, forma- galaxy collision. But... It wasn't quite what they thought it was. Um, it didn't behave like a supernova and ended up that um, that currently, when you look at that area, you see a long jet of radio energy um, coming out. So a jet, a big, uh, instead of it being like a, a, a sphere moving out from the center of the explosion, it's these two jets, polar huh. jets, and huh. headed in opposite directions. And it's like, what is that? What they think it is, it's what they call a tidal disruption event, which is basically one of these stars um, of, it's not a supermassive star, it's like two, two solar masses, so twice the size of our star, um, gets a little too close. Either it formed and, and you know, it's, it's kind of luck, but it does happen from time to time. A black hole, a little too close to a black hole. It's bad. We, we've talked about black holes here. They're, they're not great. Um, and the gravitational force, the tidal forces from that black hole were such that they took this star twice the mass of our sun and smushed it, basically, just completely tore it into pieces. Which, if you think about it for a little bit, like a star twice the size of ours just completely just disintegrated, <laughs> yeah. just like just smashed. And, that's a, and what is a star? It's a big ball of gas. So what happened was this two solar mass star got completely, you know, squished and about half of its mass ended up in an accretion disk, which is that a very bright, hot disk of material orbiting around the black hole. And eventually it will spiral in and be sucked in by the black hole. Mm -hmm. That's one of the ways we can see a black hole is the high energy stuff that is uh, around the black hole because it's able to emit light that gets out um, before it gets swallowed. Um, because it's not across the event horizon yet. But the other half of that material gets kind of zoomed out to these polar jets at a very high speed and a huge amount of energy. Um, and that is what they saw. So it's it's cool because we've seen stellar collisions and we see um, we see black holes eating each other. We've seen a lot of stuff. But this is, I think, one of the few examples where we've been able to see very clearly the idea that a black hole is eating another star. And I think what I read is that this is basically um, 
at, at, at several points, it's, it's more energetic than a supernova, which is kind of mind-boggling, but the, because it is just the wholesale destruction of all of that stellar material. So pretty fun, especially if you like to imagine a star being just ripped apart by a black hole. It's pretty bananas. <laughs> I had no idea. Mm, yep. This is very educational uh, and sort of terrifying in a way, honestly. Yeah, I, I, I try to picture like, like a fruit that just gets stepped on by like an elephant. That's basically what happened here, is that the black hole is the elephant and that star is, is, is like an apple. And it's gone. And there's, nothing, there's nothing left but like some applesauce down there. Yeah. That's really good. Solar applesauce. You heard it here. I'm going to lift off. But, uh, Stephen, uh, nobody yes. wants to hear anything more about squishing uh, a mm. star because it's time for everybody's favorite special segment on the Liftoff podcast. It's SLS segment. Space launch system segment explaining geopolitics, mechanical systems, engineering achievements, news, and trivia. Whew. SLS segment. Before we get into this, I would like a little, actually what you just did, like a basically like a little musical interlude, <laughs> introduction to this. Mm-hmm. So we crowdsourced the name of this segment, and frankly, that came out perfectly. Uh, mm-hmm. So I'm going to put the call back out. If someone wants to make like a very a brief, just a little stinger, you know, a little sing-song intro to this, uh, send us a link, and uh, maybe we'll start using it. I'd like to have something. Mm. Okay. Because honestly, saying that, like, whew, I just need to lay down now. But if it's in a song yeah. or something, it's better. Okay. Yeah. NASA boss, Brian Stein, talking about SLS in the context of something we're going to talk about after the ad break with this, uh, the most recent uh, Space Council <laughs> meeting. Mm-hmm. But uh, some comments about the SLS um, that I thought were interesting. Uh, this is from uh, via spacenews.com. Uh, he said that he'd be open to revisiting uh, the SLS's capabilities Uh should commercial vehicles with similar capabilities enter service in the future? Quote, if, it, if, that, if there comes a day where someone else can deliver what the SLS can, then we need to think differently. It's always evolving. Hmm. Could be off the cuff, but because this segment is about the SLS, we're going to dive into this a little bit. Uh, there's been, I mean, really since the beginning of, of the SLS program, there have been conversations of what happens when... Uh, ULA or SpaceX or whoever just bought whoever else, it's always changing. Um, what happens when one of these commercial partners builds something that rivals the SLS? And uh, the Falcon Heavy's not quite there, but the BFR would be. Right. How would NASA respond to that? You know, the way that they are going to uh, set the SLS apart from the other vehicles on the market is that, hey, hey, it can lift a lot more and critically go a lot further. And that is foolish to think that 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 will always be the case, right? These commercial partners are making up uh, tremendous speed going into their new projects. And I just find that interesting, the thought of what happens if the SLS, instead of being sort of the leader of the pack, is just another option on a shelf of multiple options when a mission or an agency is looking for a launch vehicle. 
Yeah, this is this is the I was going to say the million dollar question, but uh, let's be serious. This is the billion to trillion dollar question, yeah. which is what happens. And uh, I mentioned that story um, not too long ago that somebody wrote that was about um, the political consequences of this. The fact that every you know every congressional district has a piece of SLS. Every state has a piece of SLS because that's part of the kind of like NASA industrial complex and it's a lot to uh disengage from but Mm -hmm. that said and again we are going to talk about this more after the break uh, in a different context but that said the operation of our nation's government today is seemingly like all sorts of things that we assume will be the way they are um the executive branch, at least, seems to not be interested in that. Now, here's the thing. <laughs> NASA gets its funding from Congress. Like, the, the, the executive branch operates NASA, but as we've said many times on this show... Like NASA says, Meh, we don't want to go to Europa. Congress says, here's money. You're going to Europa. And NASA's <laughs> like, all right, right. I, yeah. I guess we're going to do that because it's a law and it got signed. So um, I guess we'll do that. Mm-hmm. And so I want to say never say never because this administration, I feel like if any administration was going to say, yeah, we're just going to can that thing and um, use the use SpaceX and uh, ULA game over all this money that we put into it all these plans we're just going to can it if like anybody would do that it would be this administration but that said i think it would be highly possible that the next step after that would be that congress would uh, pass a a bill into law and you know have it signed into law as part of some budget package that basically funds sls and says you will continue with sls Mm -hmm. because that's a pattern that we've seen in u.s government uh control of nasa over the years and it would not surprise me if that continued regardless um that said i would love it if there were commercial alternatives to sls that were um cheaper and did everything it did because hey that means there's going to be more exploration because it's going to be cheaper access to space. But we're not there yet. So then again, the SLS isn't here yet either. So I don't know. It's, yeah, I think, I think I'm with you on that. Um, I don't see a world in which Congress lets us go. Uh, for all the reasons we've talked about for years on this show, right? It, it creates jobs in every corner of the country. It is a symbol, for better or worse, of like national pride in our space agency i just did like a fist pump you couldn't see it but I did a fist pump um all those reasons i think are things that you cannot overcome anyways i thought it was interesting that's all yeah yeah i think it's the end of the segment oh sls segment it's over people don't have to do the ending of the no they could that's a lot more editing just just the beginning part it's all i'm after all right all right okay don't send an ending in (laughs) tell us about our sponsor Okay, this episode is brought to you by Eero. With Eero, you never need to worry that your Wi-Fi isn't fast enough to stream movies or download files. It's a Wi-Fi setup of dreams, fast, reliable connection throughout your whole house. The second generation Eero includes a third 5 gigahertz radio, making it twice as fast as before. A lot of radios, lots of intelligence. The result is that you can very simply cover your house with Wi-Fi, and it's fast, and you will. it's reliable. All of the things that you want 
from Wi-Fi without complex network setup because that is no fun. The Eero sits flat on any surface. You just plug it into the wall with the included power adapter and you're ready to connect your Eero either with Ethernet or wirelessly. And it's got a thread radio as well, so you can connect to some lower power devices like locks and doorbells. They've also got the teeny tiny Eero beacon, which you just plug into the wall. That's it. And it'll expand coverage wirelessly to any room. It talks back to the bigger Eero. And uh, the the other Eero tells it what, you know, here, here, here's some, here's some data. So you plug this in. I have one of these in my son's room. I literally just plug it into a wall outlet. That's it. Now that has pushed the Wi-Fi out in not only uh, through my son's room, but out into the backyard. It's pretty, pretty great. And all I had to do was just plug that into a wall outlet and I was done. No wires at all because it's talking to the other arrows. There's even a built-in LED nightlight with an ambient light sensor. So it will pull double duty if you want a nightlight, wherever you plug one of those things in. The Eero app lets you control the whole network from your phone. It's no hassle to create and share a guest network. The customer support is phenomenal. You can call and get hold of a Wi-Fi expert in just 30 seconds. I switched my whole network over to Eero uh, not too long ago, and I have no complaints. It's been great. Um, I, I have the best wireless coverage that I have ever had, and I've been doing Wi-Fi since the uh, first airport base station back in the old days, so it's been a long time. You can get your own Eero system, including one second-generation Eero and two beacons to plug into those wall outlets for just three ninety nine. That's everything you need to get started and cover your house with Wi-Fi. And you don't have to wait weeks to get hold of your new dream Wi-Fi setup, listeners of Liftoff can get free overnight shipping anywhere in the U.S. or Canada by going to Eero.com, that's E-E-R-O.com, and use the promo code Liftoff. Eero.com, promo code Liftoff, free overnight shipping. Thank you to Eero for blanketing my house and Wi-Fi, beautiful, beautiful Wi-Fi, and for supporting Liftoff. So we're going to talk about this space council meeting. It was the, uh, I think, the third meeting of the group run by Vice President Pence, uh, met at the at the White House, talked about a bunch of stuff, talked about uh, commercial partners, talked about whatever they're calling the Lunar Gateway this week. Uh, but the headline, the thing that um, everyone was pulled toward was a comment from President Trump directing the Pentagon to create a space force as the sixth military branch serving the United States government. Uh, this is something that... <laughs> Ironically, the White House and Air Force disapproved of uh, last year. The House of Representatives tried pushing this uh, back in uh, back last year or the year before, and the other parts of the government said no, but now the White House is saying yes. Uh, there are a bunch of links in the show notes. This all happened yesterday as we record this, so like, it's basically just all questions at this point, including like, how does the government make a new military branch, because that hasn't been done in decades, all the way up to... Does this break treaties that we hold? What does a space force actually do? Like, lots of questions. And I think we're going to try to walk through this without... Well, I'll say this for me. Jason may make fun of it. Uh, I'm trying to, like, take this seriously. I am, because it is super serious. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, like, there's an element to this. And I think people on Twitter, kind of the reaction has been, like... The idea of like, you know, people zipping around in space with like ray guns yeah. um, on one side and the other side, uh, the American government doesn't own a launch vehicle that can get to low Earth orbit. So it's like, yeah, also, uh, what will they do? <laughs> you have a, a heart, uh, you know, a horse and cart situation, uh, you know, astronauts and rockets, kind of the same thing. <laughs> this is, it's all questions, Jason. It's just questions all the way down. I, I know. I will. I mean, 
I was the one who put in our little shared notes document, WTF question mark at one point, because it's like, um, I do think you need to take it seriously. At the same time, this requires congressional approval. And I refer you to my previous comments on congressional approval of things related to space that the uh, that the space folks in the committees in the Congress have opinions about this stuff. And this is one of those areas where um, historically presidents can say all sorts of things and then Congress kind of goes, mm, yeah, yeah, we're not going to do that. Yeah. And so it may be that. Um, and I, I agree with you. I think it sounds cool, which may be why the president uh, suggested it, but like creating a whole new military branch. And then I've got this question of like, what goes what goes in there? Like spy satellites and stuff. That's all like NSA. Um it's not it's not i think not military per se although maybe it is like military connected i don't know the intricacies of how these different aspects of the u.s government especially on the military side and especially on the spy side work together um we don't have a launch vehicle would we because i started to think like would there be like space force officers that would go to the iss or fly you know, because that, that's the thing is like NASA is a civilian agency. Yeah. So you could we there, there are lots of military people. We think of NASA people oftentimes as military people. And they they were often, especially in the early days, but to this day, often career military officers who would then be transferred to NASA. But NASA is a civilian agency. So they would be acting as civilians on these missions um, because it's a civilian agency. So, you know, that's a question of like, how does this work? Are, is it a militarization of an astronaut corps? Um, is it something different? Where is the, um, where is the, the Space Force Academy? Is that like on the moon? <laughs> I, I have questions. I have questions too. Who knows, man? Who knows? I, I don't know. Knows? I don't know. It's it's. I think in some ways the facile reactions to this news might be the best ones because I think they take this about as seriously as the um, as it deserves to be taken. Yeah. Because it is. It, this feels more like an impulse or desire than a plan, and maybe there will be a plan at some point. And I, I think if there were a plan, Congress would probably consider that, but. Otherwise, I think this could very easily be one of these things that gets floated and then just kind of doesn't happen. I'll, I'll remind everybody that uh, the original executive branch budget killed W first mm -hmm. and Congress restored all the money for that for that mission. Right. Like so even even this Congress and this president they've had this dance that it's no different than it was with the Obama administration, for example, where they kept saying, NASA kept saying mm, Europa. And then that the Culberson from Texas, the the chair of the, of the space committee would be like, or space subcommittee would be like, no, we're putting that in. You're going to go to Europa and they are going to go to Europa. That's that's it's in the plan because of that. So uh, we have a track record, this administration in this Congress that th that game is still happening. Who knows? I don't know. Uh, it hurts my head. Yeah, let's go to Mars. Okay, the air is thinner there, uh, and dusty, <laughs> and not breathable, and dusty, super dusty, super dusty. Yeah. So the the news is there's a huge dust storm. It's cover like more than a quarter of Mars, and that's problematic if you are a 
small Martian rover powered by solar panels, such as uh, such as Opportunity. So back on the 12th, so about a week ago now, NASA lost contact with the rover. Uh, the thought is, basically, so there's all this dust in the sky, visibility is way down, very little sunlight reaching the surface, and the hope is that Opportunity has just slipped into like a low power state, and that when the storm clears, uh, if there's not a thick coating of dust on the solar panels, that Opportunity would, would uh, basically just wake back up, right? The solar power would recharge the batteries, heaters would come on, and everything would be uh, would be hunky-dory. But it's kind of a waiting game for now to see what actually happens. Yeah, the, this is... I mean, they, they've talked about this before, this idea that when you're doing solar stuff on Mars, dust, storms can block light, and then dust can also land on the panels, which is another issue, especially for stationary um Stationary objects, stationary landers, I guess. Landers, not rovers, landers. But, um, you know, op- opportunity's been out there for a long time. Mm-hmm. And hopefully it will it will shake this one off, too. But it's definitely at least a little bit of an ex- existential threat for, for opportunity because it's cut off from its power supply. And if it gets too... I think the fear is, yeah, if it gets too cold, then it may be kind of like out of luck. But we'll just have to see. Yeah, so uh, we're keeping an eye on that. You know, uh, hopefully it's not too much longer before before they they know something. But yeah, like you said, I'm not sure I would bet against opportunity. Uh, a rover with a 90 day mission that was supposed to be over 14 years ago. It's like it's a tough cookie, and uh, I'm hoping that it's got uh, lots of life left in it. All right, so let's uh, let's wrap up this week talking about a retirement from NASA. So we're going to talk about uh, Peggy Whitson. She had 32 years at the space agency, including three long-duration uh, space station expeditions, and she accumulated 665 days in orbit, a record for a U.S. astronaut. Yeah, this is uh, this is the she is the all-time astronaut. You know, American astronaut. So many marathon. So so what? 184 days in 2002 on the ISS. 2007, she went back. 192 days. That w- that mission, she was the first female commander of the ISS. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, was chief of the astronaut corps from 2009 to 2012. First woman to occupy that position. And going back to what we said earlier, first non-military astronaut corps chief so so much credibility uh so much history there and then she went back again in 2016 um turned 56 in space the oldest woman to fly in space that mission was extended three months <laughs> she returned in 2000 uh, what in 2017 so mm-hmm. yeah the, this is she has spent a long time in outer space two years in space it's pretty it's a pretty impressive uh, pretty impressive run. She actually began uh, back in 1986 at the National Research Council um, at Johnson Space Center in Houston. Worked as a project scientist for the Shuttle Mir program. First mission, uh, like I said, it was back in 2002. Uh, just a, a long list of achievements that uh, actually are punctuated by many awards. So the NASA Outstanding Leadership Medal. NASA Space Space Flight Medal, 
the NASA Silver Snoopy Award, which I'll have a link in the show notes if you haven't read about the Silver Snoopy Award. That's kind of a, a neat part of NASA culture. Uh, and she was included in the Time 100 list of influential people for 2018. Yeah, I mean, this is, I, I think Peggy Whitson would go pretty uh, decently in our astronaut draft, don't you? Totally. Totally. Mm-hmm. Oh. I think uh, I think that's it for this week, though. I think that's the uh, the end of this liftoff. I think so. Uh, we do have a great guest coming up in two weeks. So, and and also we should just we're gonna peek behind the curtain here and say, if enormous space news happens in the next two weeks, we're not gonna cover it because we're both gonna be traveling. So we have a great guest. There's gonna be an interview episode in two weeks, and then we will be back two weeks after that to talk about how it was definitely aliens this time. Mm, that's a promise I'm not sure we can keep. <laughs> no, probably not. Uh, but until then, if you want to find show notes, links we talked about, head over to relay.fm slash liftoff slash 75. You can get in touch with us there via email, or you can find us on Twitter. Jason is Jay Snell. You can find me there as ISMH. And until our next fortnight, Jason, say goodbye. Goodbye, everybody. Adios. Adios.